Hello and welcome to another episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today I conduct a conversation with a young American conductor who rose to prominence after winning the 2018 Malco competition. Originally from Los Angeles, his studies took him to Scotland and the Netherlands and soon he starts as principal conductor of the BBC National Orchestra of Wales. A pleasure to welcome Ryan Bancroft. Ryan, what a pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Not a problem at all. Um, with everybody, I go right back to the beginning, Ryan. Um, could you tell me how music first came into your life, your earliest memories of music? Sure. Yeah, it's it's actually, it's quite simple, actually. I mean, for I, my parents, they were both interested in their own genres. My mom sort of liked alternative rock and my dad loved smooth jazz. Uh, my brothers both both heavily listened to rap music and I kind of just took a little bit from everyone. Um, for classical music, however, that happened when my family got our very first computer and there is this music program on it called Yahoo Music Jukebox, which I'm not even sure exists anymore. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, but it, it had these sort of 10 um, one minute clips of different songs and pieces, some pop music, but there was one piece of classical music and it was the first minute of the scherzo movement of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And I would say for about seven years, I had no idea what happened after that first minute. But, um, but I was absolutely transfixed by that. And I thought it was incredibly cool and, and fun. And now looking back, just really powerful because it started everything pretty much. Yeah. Um, and was anybody playing instruments in your house? Uh, obviously, there was a love of listening to music, but was anybody actually playing no, no playing. None in my entire family, actually. Not even my cousins. Uh, some of my cousins were dancers, and I used to go to some of their dance practices and watch that. Uh, but not an entirely musical family. My, my brother was in a choir when we were in our primary school days, which doesn't really count, um, <laughs> especially since he was completely and utterly not interested in music whatsoever. Um, but then when I was maybe six or seven years old, they, uh, at the primary school I was at, um, offered recorder lessons. And so we did that for about a week and I absolutely hated it. Um, <laughs> I, unfortunately, because now I'm absolutely in love with the recorder. Um, but then I thought, no, this is, this is absolutely not for me and I'm not going to continue with this. Uh, and then the next year, you were allowed to pick up a string instrument. So I picked up the violin. I was horrendous at the violin and continued to think, well, yep, this is really not for me. So I might as well <laughs> just go to the orchestra lessons and continue on and play my open strings. And then next year, I'll get to play a wind instrument, which I was actually really, really excited about. And I... Uh -huh. Uh, remember from the beginning I wanted to play the trumpet because I thought that I only had to play three notes because there were only three valves on the <laughs> trumpet. But I thought, okay, yeah, I've got this in the bag. This will be easy. <laughs> Little did I know yeah. that actually complicates things. <laughs> yeah, very much. Um, yeah. yeah. So basically started there, started there very slowly, but eventually thought, you know, this, this might work actually. It's interesting that you say that you had no music in your family. Um, I'm, I was the same. I grew up 
Um, there was no music in our family. We li- enjoyed listening to it. And then, you know, I was offered really? the chance. Yeah, I was offered the chance to play the violin at the age of nine. And 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 really, it was sort of bolt from the blue that, you know, I happened to be yeah. happened to be quite good at the violin and love music. But there was no history of it. Whereas, you know, some of the other conductors I've talked to, they, they come from, a, you know, a long line of, of musical um, relatives and generations of music. And, I, I, you know, whether it stands you in good stead or not, it's interesting to hear another person who's who's come from nowhere musically, so to speak. Yeah, and it's fascinating, especially in my own household where there was absolutely no classical music whatsoever. I don't know what it was. I, I, I could not tell you to this day why classical music jumped out at me. I mean, I still, of course, have a massive appreciation and listen to so many other genres of music, yeah. of course, um, but no idea why classical music stuck so strongly. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And yeah. so, and so, the trumpet became uh, your thing, your instrument. Yeah, pretty strongly from the beginning. I, I, I think there were enough people telling me that I had a talent for it. Obviously, I was seven, eight years old, so as much of a talent as I could have had then. Um, and I think what's important to note is my family is also a really big sports family, and both of my brothers were extremely talented at sports my oldest brother being talented at boxing and my middle brother being a very talented pretty much everything baseball player primarily and my dad was a baseball coach as well um so i tried i tried doing baseball i wasn't bad i was pretty you know I, i was pretty average at it i tried basketball i tried american football nothing really um fit but then all of a sudden there was this thing that not only did I feel connected to, but I felt that I was kind of good at actually. Yeah. And so in that case, my parents thought, you know what, then just go for it and we'll see where we go. But I didn't start private lessons on trumpet until a bit later. I was maybe 13 years old when I started private lessons. But it's interesting, as you say, that you find, that you find something that you're good at and it sort of spurs you on and you want to become, you become interested in it. And you know, I was the same with the violin, but also talking about sports, my big sport was cricket. And I, when I was 16, I had a big wow. decision, a big decision to make. Did I, was I a good enough bowler to become a cricketer or was I a good enough violinist to become a violinist? And uh, wow. I, uh, after a morning's trial for Kent Juniors, I uh, found out that I was a better violinist than a bowler. So <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that, that decision was made for me. But yeah, I mean, you know, you pour <laughs> all of your youthful efforts and thoughts into doing something because yeah. somebody tells you you're good at it. Yeah, I'm glad you're bringing, I'm really glad you're bringing this up because uh, I don't come from a family of much means or anything. And uh, we just so happened to live across the street from an ice rink growing up. And I was always fascinated by the speed skaters there. And I always thought it would have been the most amazing thing to be a speed skater. But of course, with most winter sports are incredibly expensive. Mm -hmm. So we never really explored that route. And to this day, I wonder if I would have speed skated, if that would have stuck. Um, I still wonder. So looking ahead, um, we go through school and then I see that you went to the California Institute for the Arts, CalArts. Uh, did you major in trumpet or did you have to major in a sort of more overall generic topic? It was just trumpet. I, I did my uh, bachelor's of fine arts and my master's of fine arts in trumpet performance there. I started conducting there as well. 
Um, but I was very serious about being a professional trumpet player. Um, at first, I was serious about being an orchestral trumpet player. And the school sort of knocked it out of my head a little bit just because the school is extremely famous for doing experimental music and different experimental arts and contemporary works and sort of a lot of focus on chamber works. And so eventually I became really interested in trumpet more as a chamber musician and trying to figure that out as much as possible. And then eventually it of course led to conducting, but yeah, trumpet was, was my end all for everything for a very, very long time. I mean, I studied it for six years uh, formally in college. So my parents were very happy that I followed through with that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it sounds like the sort of place that you could experiment in all directions, not just as you just explained, but I read that you did some Ghanaian drumming and, um, you know, that it sounds like a sort of wonderful place to just immerse yourself in all things music. Yeah, fantastic place. It, it's it not only just music, but it has one of the most famous animation schools in the world. So all of a sudden I was surrounded by people that were all going to be working for Disney and Pixar and DreamWorks after this. And I thought that was incredibly cool. But the great thing about the music school was that it offered so many different genres and aspects there was an amazing or is an amazing jazz program and also different world music programs and composition of course but for me what was so so incredible was the Ghanaian music and dance program which for me I was primarily a dancer in the program actually for about mm. five years and I took it incredibly seriously towards the end of my time there I would go with the sort of school company to um, dance in many different venues around Southern California and sometimes I even got paid which was great as well um, and actually when I moved away from California that was one of the things if not the main thing I was most sad about is losing my community of dancers and this sort of smallish community in northern Los Angeles that focused on Ghanaian music and dance that I still love so much. Mm. So throughout this time at CalArts where it sounds like you had incredible opportunities um, and you said that you first conducted there. When would you say conducting was a thought that popped into your head about maybe wanting to do more of it? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually, because conducting, it, it was sort of in the back of my mind, honestly, for quite some time. I, I was really quite serious about being a trumpet player primarily for the rest of my life. And yeah. uh, when I was... Um, young and of course when we got our first computer and there were video streaming services online and whatnot i would see different concerts and i would see um different orchestral concerts and think oh there's a person standing up there and that's just a part of it great you know that that could be cool and of course i would mimic what was happening on the video and everything i mean i was nine years old or something mm. um and then when i was in high school we were required to do volunteer service hours outside of school and so I decided to be an usher at the local orchestra, which is the Long Beach Symphony Orchestra. And the music director was Joanne Folletta at the time. And I used to watch all of these concerts. And then another conductor came in named Arturo Diemek. And I thought, oh, wow, they can also be men. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and I remember uh, seeing, I mean, still to this day, some of the most formative concerts I've ever seen. I mean, I remember when I saw um, James McMillan's The Confession of Isabel Gowdy for the first time and thinking that was the most visceral music I'd ever heard in my entire life. I remember the first time I heard Beethoven's Sixth Symphony as well. 
and also Mahler's Ninth Symphony, which I thought was the biggest bore I had ever heard <laughs> in my <laughs> life, which my opinion has completely changed now. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so it was, it was always kind of there, but I didn't actually start waving my arms like a sort of organic windmill till I was in college. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I read that, I think it was there that you did a, a performance of the Mozart Requiem. Yes, in, yeah. in memory of your father. Was that was that one of the first big concerts he would have done conducting? That was the first big concert. Oh, the, I, right, okay, yeah. Yeah, I I had done very very small things prior to that. Like I, I conducted for a string composition class one time. They needed someone that could keep the ensemble together, and I thought, well, I I kind of know the pattern because I played in youth orchestras and whatnot. And so I would do that and I wouldn't rehearse or anything. I would just, I would just wave my arms. Right. Um, and maybe there are a few other things that were, were related to that. But then when my father passed in 2010, um, I just thought, well, what's his favorite piece? And his favorite piece was Mozart's Requiem, which was probably also the only piece of classical music that he actually liked <laughs> now that I think okay. about it. Yeah. But that's just because my parents met uh, I, many years ago, but their first date was watching Amadeus, the film. Oh, of course, and yes, yes. Wonderful film, and I think because of that, they loved Mozart together, but then other than that, they would much rather listen to David Benoit and Billy Joel. So, um, yeah, decided to put together Mozart's Requiem. Uh, the He passed January 9th, and the performance was on March 19th, uh, just mm. a couple of months later every single person in the orchestra and, and choir were friends of mine. And that kind of started a lot of things, but at the same time, I still have never listened to the piece since. So no, I'm, I'm sure. No, it's, uh, yeah, it's probably very raw and yeah, emotional for you. Yeah. I'm assuming uh, therefore around that time, uh, you were start, did you start having lessons at CalArts in conducting whilst you were still trumpeting or were you, a bit like I was thinking, well, it's an interesting diversion, but actually I still want to be a professional trumpet player. I want to be a prof professional violinist. Yeah, yeah, exactly that, actually. I, I was still very much so incredibly interested in being a trumpet player. Um, I, I, I did notice that once I started conducting, I sort of stopped enjoying practicing trumpet all of a sudden. <laughs> this, <laughs> and, sounds, this sounds so surreally like my life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I completely understand. And, mm. and there was just something about the, the physical aspect of trumpet playing that I really didn't like. And I didn't like having to keep up the chops and, and do all the labor that came with it that a lot of people find a lot of joy and fulfillment out of. And unfortunately, that kind of left um, I took some lessons. I took a lesson from my trumpet teacher, actually named Ed Carroll, who's a phenomenal pedagogue and trumpet teacher and also a conductor. Yeah. Um, I took a couple of lessons from him. There was another student at CalArts that just so happened to have had a conducting degree from before. And he gave me a lesson as well. And that was very valuable to me. Um, but then it was actually my trumpet teacher, Ed Carroll, that said, maybe you should think about actually studying this. And that's when I started applying for schools and whatnot and ended up where I ended up. Um, which was where? Uh, Royal Conservatory of Scotland in Glasgow. Wow, that's a big leap, isn't it? From yeah, huge Cal leap. California to Glasgow. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and now majoring in conducting. 
Yes, now yes. I was just conducting. I still played trumpet. I mm. depped as a trumpet player with the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, which was really, really amazing, of course, and a huge yeah. privilege to have. I um, met some really, really nice people there, but primarily my focus was conducting. Yeah. Well, I mean, it goes to show that you were a good trumpet player if you were if you were depping with the BBC Scottish. Um, no, thanks. Wow. So who was, who was teaching you there at uh, the RCS in Glasgow? I had uh, three teachers, actually. The first teacher that I met was Alistair Mitchell, who sort of put my sea legs out there and, <laughs> and, and, tried, and tried his best to have me not jump around like a fool, which he failed at to this day. Um, but, <laughs> um, but in general, he, he taught me, he's, he's a musical grandfather of mine. Um, also Gary Walker, who mm. f fantastic ears. He's now with Opera North and I learned an immense amount from him for sure. Um, his ears are unbelievable. And also uh, this guy named Jean-Claude Picard actually, who is the uh, principal conductor of Scottish ballet. I had private lessons with him as well. Mm. That was really, really fantastic actually, because it was nice to have sort of opinions from outside the school and just sort of put my feelers out there. But primarily my teachers when I was in Scotland, those three, and they definitely formed me as a conductor, at least in the early years, for sure. I mean, I know because I've been up there and done a couple of one day visits talking to the conductors uh, on the course that you were doing, but they also have good links with uh, the Royal Scottish National Orchestra and, uh, and the BBC Scottish and you go and watch rehearsals. Absolutely. Um, which, uh, yeah, even though you were playing in some of those rehearsals as a trumpet player, I'm sure that's also a very good place for you to sort of learn um, both good things and bad things, do you think? Yeah, huge, huge. I mean, this is the first time that I was ever able to sit in on rehearsals. I had never sat in on rehearsals whenever I wanted to. I mean, I used to go to the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra all the time, and I, I remember the very first concert that I sort of just observed rehearsals for was this entire Boulez concert that Matthias Pincher was conducting. And I thought it was just the most cool thing to see this process go on because I, I had never seen it from first rehearsal to last rehearsal. Um, and then actually serendipitously, uh, a couple of weeks later, uh, James McMillan was conducting and he was conducting the Confession of Isabel Gaudi mm -hmm. and considering that was one of the first um, sort of classical experiences that I had live that deeply impacted me. I mean it was also the very first uh, classical music CD that I bought myself was with the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra performing and then <laughs> getting to see them perform it live was an extremely surreal and moving experience for me. Um, but also with the RSNO, I mean, and the Scottish Chamber Orchestra, I can't leave them out. They, no. they were massive in my just being absorbed into this world as much as possible. Mm. And then uh, onto The Hague, or onto the Netherlands, should I say, yes. I mean, because it wasn't just The Hague, where I read that you studied with uh, Kenneth Montgomery and also with one of my previous interviewers of uh, interviews on the podcast, Jack Van Steen. Yeah, my second father. Yeah, <laughs> how was that? I'm intrigued to know uh, because Jack told us all about his ideology and how he came to teach and what, what mm -hmm. it means to him to teach. But I'm interested now to hear your side of what it's like being taught by Jack. Yeah, 
Yeah, the the Netherlands is exactly what I needed at that point. Uh, mm. Scotland, which to this day is a place that I miss more than any other place on the face of the planet. It 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 absolutely set me on my way. But the Netherlands, it was a joint program between Amsterdam and The Hague. Um, it sort of put this fire under my behind in a way to like, if you really want to take this seriously, this is, this is the time to do it. And we are giving you absolutely all of the tools to do that. And thankfully with the three teachers, Ed Spaniard, Jack von Steyn and Kenneth Montgomery, they were and are people that deeply believe in the potential of their students. And that's amazing to have, especially when, you know, I mean, I'm a young conductor and I was even more young then. And when I'm questioning, is this the right direction to go into? Is this, is this really for me? Um, they would always come back and say, let's just study together. Let's figure this out. Let's take lessons. Let's go to rehearsals. Let's do this. And so they were incredibly involved. And thankfully with the program that I was in, the National Masters of Orchestral Conducting, sorry, it's in Dutch. I had to translate it. Um, I was like, I don't remember what the program was called. Um, uh, due to this program, we were conducting professional orchestras almost every week, actually. And we would travel with our teachers as well. I traveled with Jacques all over the place. I was in Belfast with him. I was in Prague with him. Um, and also my other teachers as well. I would travel with them. And I visited so many different countries that I had never been to before and discovered so much music that I had never discovered before. And the lessons were very intense and always loving at the same time, which I really feel I must stress. There was never a point where I thought, this is violent or this is too mean or too this. It's just not in their character to do that. And I don't know, sort of having this trial by fire over two years of conducting uh, the Netherlands and many other European countries, best orchestras, that was phenomenal. And, you know, the learning curve spiked up very, very quickly because of that. Mm. I mean, Jack himself mentioned about the fact that he takes and you mentioned the two orchestras that you, he talked about, which is going to Belfast and with the Ulster Orchestra and also going to Prague with the Prague Symphony. And he yes. talked about the two approaches about how when you go to Prague, that you know, you, you sit and watch these, these rehearsals and find out a way of playing that maybe you've never seen before that doesn't yeah. exist in other places. But then you go to Belfast and you're likely to be given 15, 20 minutes on the podium in front of yes. you. Yeah, um, yeah. which you know I, I think as a student is just it's gold dust um, yeah that you're not just conducting two pianos that you're actually standing in front of people for the first time um, and you've got your teacher there as a uh, as backup mentally you know and all of that all of that sort of stuff I think it's wonderful absolutely and especially especially with teachers like Jacques or like Ed or Kenneth I mean it it is pretty amazing that the repertoire that they conducted, they would actually let us conduct as well. And so I was, I was incredibly fortunate actually to be able to conduct the Prague Symphony while I was young. Um, he was doing Mahler's Third Symphony, and also the year before when I went with him, he was doing Zemlinsky's Lyric Symphony, and I got to conduct a little bit of that, uh, maybe three, four minutes or something. But that was massive. And then the next year when he was doing Mahler's third symphony, I got to do a little bit of the last movement again, maybe three or four minutes. Um, but actually Jacques, Jacques kind of said it well when I was there in Prague, He's, he said, 
this is music education enough just being in Prague, which absolutely <laughs> yeah. agreed. And then in yeah. Belfast, it was the exact same thing. I mean, I got to conduct quite a lot while I was there. And that was also very informative for my conducting in the, I don't know, maybe six or seven years ago when that was. And yeah, I mean, the program is deeply, or at least the teachers are deeply invested in your future. And you can pretty much get that same response from anyone that I've studied with them. That's wonderful. Um, so, but to, to also just to have, uh, and, and it's worth saying to somebody who's never conducted an orchestra before, to have the feeling, even if you conduct for three or four minutes, to have the different feeling of, the, of how an orchestra responds to your beat, be it in Prague, be it in the Netherlands, be it in Belfast, be it in Glasgow, it, it, you know, those three or four minutes you walk away from and you've learned so much because they, they all respond differently, they all sound differently, um, and you don't know that until you actually do it. You can, exactly. It's a bit like being a parent. You know, you're told what it's like, but you don't actually get to understand it until you actually are a parent. You can read all the, exactly. books, you, all the books you like, but then, yeah, and it's the same with conducting orchestras. So I think that's a wonderful, wonderful study program that they, that they run and they do. I agree. Yeah. I 100% agree. You all of a sudden become twice, twice over a better musician the first time you conduct the last movement of Mahler's Third Symphony. It's <laughs> not only like, obviously it's some of the most miraculous music that's ever been written, but also you learn, oh, people play at a very different part of the beat than I was expecting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and you learn that and you learn that immediately. And yeah, it's, it's those small happenings that, that occurred that, that absolutely made me a better musician and conductor immediately, for sure. So how long after you finished in the Netherlands was it before you entered uh, the Malco competition? I'm really happy about the fact that you're the second person I can talk to about a competition. Um, the, the other person was Martin Brabins who won the Leeds competition. I applied for it maybe, I applied for the Malco competition maybe four months after I graduated from the program, mm. uh, once the applications opened up, I, I had never done a competition before. I wasn't sure if I wanted to do one. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's a bit. That's a big question, isn't it? Do you want to do a competition? Are you? Because you know, we could spend many hours on podcasts talking about the 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 yays or nays about conducting competitions or violin competitions, for that matter. But absolutely. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I can only speak from my own experience. I, I had, I, I, I'm very fortunate that I trust my teachers. And speaking of Martin Brabens, mm. I yeah. um, did a masterclass with him in Orkney, of all places, uh, when I was studying in Scotland. And in our final meeting, he told me, I think you would do well in competitions. <laughs> <laughs> right, and okay. I, and it immediately in my head, I was like, okay, well, maybe that means one day I'll enter a competition, but um, I'm kind of against them in principle. And I wasn't yeah. sure if that was some, a road that I wanted to go down. I also saw how it can open up a lot of doors for a lot of people. And uh, so I sort of weighed all these different options. I talked to my mentors and they all say, well, Ryan, you have absolutely zero experience in doing competitions or even, or even, applying for major master classes and stuff like that. I just, I never thought that I would be cut out for something like that. 
mm. uh, my own insecurities, of course. And, and so I decided, you know, I might as well just try apply for Malco, see what happens. If nothing happens, great. I'll just continue doing what I'm doing now, which is sort of um, making my way in my, on my own path here in the Netherlands and figure out how that's going to go. So I decided to apply for Malco competition and found out a few months after I applied that I got into the competition and then yada, yada, yada. <laughs> yeah. So what, what was the process for those who've never entered a competition of me being one, I, I don't think I ever entered one. Um, what, what's the process? So if, if you're accepted, uh, as a participant or as a competitor, which is a much worse word, but as a competitor mm. for, for the competition, what what are you told repertoire-wise, for instance? Are you told what you've got to conduct in round one and then what you might conduct if you get through to round two? Or how does it work? Yeah, we were told the entire repertoire prior. There were four rounds. Um, first round was, I believe, Beethoven and two different um, Mozart overtures, Beethoven Seventh Symphony and also Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the Adagio. Uh, the second round was Mahler's First Symphony, uh, a Tchaikovsky Symphony, and a Schumann Symphony. Third round was accompanying Dvorak Cello Concerto, um, plus a new piece by Paul Ritters, and then an overture that you had to conduct without rehearsal. And then the last round was either Brahms' First, Second, or Fourth Symphony, and the hen dance, Dance of the Cockerels by Carl Nielsen. So we knew everything in advance. We just didn't know which sections we were gonna be doing. Yeah. So we had to learn pretty much the entire pieces. And then it was either on the day of or the day before we had to actually um, figure out what we were gonna be doing the next day and then study accordingly and whatnot. And all of that was with orchestra? Correct. Yes, well, which is good. Uh, I know yeah. some competitions start with a piano round. But yes. That's good that it's all with orchestra. So, wow, I mean, that's, you know, that there's, you know, it's probably getting on for 24 hours of music alone. Yeah. That you've, you've got to, you've got to com commit or to, to knowing and be ready yeah. to conduct, you know, which is, which is fine when you're sort of my age, when I, you know, I played virtually all of that music and or conducted it, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. But when you're young like you, most of that stuff I imagine would be first time learning or fresh learning or, well, yes and no, actually. I, again, with, with the programs that I was in, especially the one in the Netherlands, I was very fortunate that I was able to conduct a lot of these pieces with a lot of professional orchestras or with amateur orchestras when I was in Scotland, which was also huge for my, mm. for my formation, if you will. Yeah. Um, and so there were, there were actually quite a lot of pieces. And actually the thing that I was happiest about <laughs> is in the final round out of the hat, I drew Brahms' second symphony, which just so happened to be probably the piece that I've conducted the most in my life. <laughs> so, I mean, in that moment, it was like, okay, at least there's a piece that I love that I'm doing in the last round. Who knows what's going to happen? But yeah. thankfully, thankfully, this is here. Um, but yeah, I mean, there were pieces I had never conducted before. I had never conducted a piece of Wagner before, and I had to conduct the Overture to Lohengrin. I had never done any Wagner whatsoever, so that was a bit daunting to me. And by far the piece that I studied the most, actually, mm. out of everything. Um, but a lot of the other pieces, just through my study programs, I had either conducted parts of or have been heavily involved in rehearsals and that was definitely something that I felt really happy about, but I still approached the studying for this competition as if I had never seen the pieces before. Mm. Well, I think that's wise. Um, yeah. And, and so, 
you win the competition, which means uh, I'm, I have no idea how, m how many guest engagements come over the, then the next two or three years. Uh, I yeah. called it in, in an earlier podcast, I called it the hamster wheel of guest conducting. <laughs> uh, which, you, you, you know, yeah, you get you get on it and, and off you go you know, week by week around the world in ever increasing or decreasing circles conducting many, many orchestras. What was that like? Yeah, it was, I mean, wow. The, I mean, on, on paper, it was uh, 24 different dates with different yeah. orchestras. Um, and of course, there was prize money and all of that stuff that came with it. But it was basically immediately 24 um, dates around the world and like on most major continents where an orchestra exists, um, uh, not including the other orchestras that also invite uh, afterwards because of the competition, but maybe yeah, they sure. didn't yeah. uh, participate in the competition, of course. Um, and then, you know, that of course also meant meetings with agencies and meeting a lot of really, really nice people and some scary people as well just because i didn't know what i was doing of course they weren't scary but in my yeah. head they were um and yeah i mean for a month i didn't sleep more than three hours a night just because the adrenaline was was out of control <laughs> yeah i bet i bet i mean yeah so much happening so quickly and um yes i'm assuming during that time when the 24 dates plus the others that that you enjoyed most of those weeks, uh, but then there are occasionally weeks that you didn't enjoy. E yes, yes. Yeah. I, I, and I think for me, at least with this, with the whole competition and everything, I mean, being a young conductor, I, I can't speak for everyone. I can only speak for myself, of course, but at least for me, the sort of crutch that I was very worried about at first is well are these people going to like me is this yeah, yeah, is yeah. you know all of a sudden this responsibility comes and now i have to uh perform and meet all these people and be authentic of course uh, with all these different places and you know i've had many different experiences i i'm very happy that a vast majority of the places i've been have been incredibly positive experiences mm. um but you know i had to learn a lot you know on paper it sounds like an absolutely amazing thing. You get all of these dates and, and you have this immediate career all of a sudden, which is absolutely true. Mm. Um, but then you have to do the work. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I do not want to discount that. And that's, yeah. something, that's something that I feel a lot of people should maybe consider when they're entering competitions is if you enter this competition, are you, know, are you willing to really put in the work? Because afterwards, there's, there's no excuses anymore. You decided to do it, um, which I'm, I'm all in all, I'm very happy with the decision that I made with entering the competition. And thankfully, the competition for me felt more like an audition than it did a competition. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in, in that way, I'm, I'm quite happy with how it went. Um, but it's definitely a lot of work and a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of studying. And I wouldn't change anything about it. And it's a lot of life lessons because, you know, you, once you start on the hamster wheel, as I called it, um, yes. you know, that, that you're, you're on your own. You know, you've got, you know, you, you do your first week wherever it might be in the, in the Netherlands, then a week in the US, then a week back in Scotland. And if they're all first dates or they're all first meetings, then you're on your own. You're learning all the time. You're, you're learning about people and people managing all the time. And yeah, yes. it's, uh, it's a big life lesson. 
Um, Massive. I mean, there's yeah. so many, there are so many countries that I had never been to. And now I have been because of the competition and because oh. of where life took me. Um, I mean, less, it's not even, it's not even just musical lessons. It's, it's major life lessons. Yeah. Like how, yeah. how to interact with people and, and learning things about different cultures as well, too. That, that's been probably the biggest gift of this yeah. competition. Yeah. Well, I'm assuming, therefore, one of those orchestras after that competition or one of those engagements would have been with the BBC National Orchestra of Wales. When was the first time you met them? I met them in, I believe it was either October or November of 2019. Yeah. Um, I, I stepped in with them. Jean Zhang was supposed to be conducting their North Wales tour and she was sick, unfortunately. Um, they were not a part of the competition. It just was something that came afterwards, which was wonderful. And I ended up doing their North Wales tour, which was Beethoven's first symphony, a Weber clarinet concerto number one, and uh, Beethoven's fifth symphony. And it was also the very first time that I had conducted in the UK too. Mm. So I was thinking, okay, well, let's see how this goes. I have two days notice on this. So we'll see how this goes. Thankfully, I'd conducted all the pieces except for the clarinet concerto. Um, and then, yeah, we, d we did three concerts. The staff is unbelievably kind. The orchestra is also unbelievably kind and very cheeky and, mm -hmm. you know, sort of a, a typical British orchestra, which is, I find so charming and endearing. Um, and then um, I, what just so happened is I was already booked with them for the next year to do a new music concert and also to record Sibelius's Fifth Symphony with them as well, pretty much the day after. Um, and so, you know, I heard things in and out and I really, really enjoyed my time. Did my other two concerts with them, um, plus the recording. And yeah, the rest is history, I guess. Oh, you're due to start, I'm assuming, in September, should things, <laughs> should, should things change. Um, is that correct, September? Correct, in principle. Yeah. Yes. September, uh, for those listening later on, September 2020, um, look it up. <laughs> yeah, the world, the world was a different place. Um, yes. But yeah, how exciting. Um, music director, uh, chief conductor of the BBC National Orchestra of Wales. Um, yes. And so how many weeks a year does that commit you to in your diary? It's sort of, it's quite flexible, but it's usually between eight and 11, I would mm. say. I guess it, it depends on what happens during the year, but typically between eight and 11 different dates. Every conductor has their own way of learning a score. What's yours? Do you use the piano? Do you start at the beginning and work your way to the end? Or do you do the bigger picture and make it all smaller? What's your, what's your plan when you come to learn a new score? And also, do you mark things in and how do you mark things in? Yeah, uh, for me, this might be quite interesting. I'm, I'm a very chaotic studier, actually. I, um, if I have all of the time in the world, I will pull out every stop possible. I will um, say I have a year to study something very small. Um, I will, of course, get all the books that I possibly can on the composer. I will learn what is the what was the composer reading at the time of writing this piece. What was the cultural layout? Blah blah blah. All mm. you know, all the typical history stuff that comes with it as well. Um, and then when it comes to my actual scores i'm quite intuitive about it in a way i i don't have a color system uh a, a sort of 
small fact about me, I'm colorblind. So uh, when it comes to marking in different colors on the score, the only thing that matters to me is if colors sort of oppose each other. So if I mark a clarinet passage at the beginning of a page in red, that means the next thing that I mark has to be blue. And then the next thing has to be red and then the next thing has to be blue and so on and so on. Um, And then sort of as the date gets closer, uh, to the actual rehearsals, you'll notice that my markings become a lot more frantic in the score <laughs> and a lot more terrified, if you will. Just if I'm going through the score front to back and there's something in my head that I forget, I'll circle it quite violently. And um, yeah, there's really no rhyme or reason. I've seen some of the most beautiful scores of my colleagues with you know, markings that are made by rulers and everything. And I, I just, I could not do that. Um, but yeah, in, in studying scores, I, I try to approach it from every angle that I possibly can. I not only, of course, look at the history of the, of the composers and what they were thinking at the time or reading or whatever, um, I will go to other um, concerts, other composers as well, and maybe through osmosis that will give me ideas Hmm. about um, the composer. Or I'll go to a museum that day because it made me think of a certain piece of artwork and maybe I'll look at that painting for a while and maybe that will give me some idea as well too. Um, I don't really have a clear cut way of studying except for immerse myself as much as humanly possible. Yeah, And, and you start that process as soon as possible. I mean, hopefully, hopefully. I mean, sometimes you have to jump into things quite quickly, but if I have all the time in the world, then yeah, as soon as possible. Mm. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned jump-ins because I I think the system I evolved or have evolved is purely just in case of Um, jump-ins. You know, asked to go and conduct an orchestra at three or four days notice and you might have to learn, as you said, with the Weber Clarinet Concerto, you might have two days to learn it. So I... I generally tend to learn pieces that I know that I've programmed myself or have been programmed by an orchestra, but I know that I'm conducting them six, nine, 12 months in advance. I learn them as early as possible and then yeah. put, put them on a desk and then nearer the time when, you know, if I haven't had to do a jumping order, and then I go back and leaf through them again and then I go back. But I do the donkey work, the early work, yes. as, as far away as possible, leaving That's- me time, yeah, just in case somebody says, would you come and conduct Marla Six next week? And, and you know, I... <laughs> <laughs> and, and I haven't, you know, I haven't done it for ages or, you know, would you come and yes. get up something and you don't know it? Yeah, it takes, um, everybody has their own system. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. So, Ryan, it's 10 question time. And like everybody else, um, it's the same 10 questions. I start with the same first two questions all in one go. What sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? A sound I love most likely would have to be people messing around in the kitchen or like sounds of cooking. So (laughs) onions sauteing or, you know, pots and pans banging around. Surprisingly enough, I really like that. And a sound I hate most definitely has to be like the sound of muscle cars revving their engines or motorcycles (laughs) revving their engines, especially if it's, you know, for the sole purpose of scaring the daylights out of anyone that's on the road. I, that fills me with a lot of rage, that's for sure. <laughs> if you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? If, okay, if I had 24 hours free, say I was in Los Angeles where I grew up, 
Um, I would start it with having an enormous breakfast, uh, most likely with French toast. Um, then I would go to probably a specialty coffee place and have a really, really, really great flat white. Um, then I would go to the beach and spend way too much time there and get way too sunburned and then go to the Hollywood Bowl later that night. For me, that's like, and whatever concert is on too, I, I really don't care. Um, that's an absolutely perfect day for me. Who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear? You know, I actually had a lot of difficulty thinking of this, but I, I kept coming back to the same the same guy, Claudio Abado, actually, he, um, from like my very, very early years, influenced my entire life musically, philosophically, all of these different things. And he's, I just enjoy watching him conduct so much. So I would most definitely have to say Claudio Abado. And who would be a favorite current conductor? Yeah, there's so many actually. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm, I'm quite optimistic when it comes to conductors and it, it's very difficult for me not to like something that someone does. Mm. Um, I'm a huge fan of Tugan Sokiev. I think he just brings a lot of joy onto the stage and I really appreciate that. Uh, same thing with Naimi Yervi as well. I mm. endlessly listen to his recordings um, and also just watch him conduct too. I think it's really, really great. Um, but I think the best, probably the best live performance I've ever seen, uh, where sort of the symbiosis between orchestra and conductor really, really worked and it was incredibly profound, uh, was Franz Velsermus with the Concertgebouw, actually. They were doing Bruckner's Seventh Symphony and it just seared into my mind. And ever since then, I've just been a huge fan of what he does as well. So for me, probably those three, Tugan, Naimi, and Franz. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? Yeah, there's, there's sort of two answers to this. Uh, mm. There is a technical one and there's, of course, an emotional one. Yes. Uh, technically, um, and hilarious story with it, technically, the most difficult piece I've ever conducted was Boulez's Sur mm. Um I, it was one of the very first pieces I ever conducted while I was still at CalArts and I was way too young to conduct it and I had to prepare it for the maestro himself. Oh my God. <laughs> Mind you, I had not even started conducting or studying conducting rather. Um, and there was also at the time the big volcano that erupted in Iceland that prevented a lot of people from traveling outside of Europe to the States. Mm. Um, and so there was the off chance that I was going to conduct it at the LA Phil. And I just thought, you know, maybe not actually, <laughs> maybe, maybe this is too much. Um, and then secondly, of course, is uh, Mozart's Requiem, which uh, for obvious reasons with my yes. father, I um, haven't yet been able to listen to it, but you know, maybe one day. Yeah. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? I personally could not leave home without my yoga mat actually i i have this very compact one that i bring with my bring in my suitcase everywhere i go and for me keeping limber is very 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 important um so yeah i would probably say my yoga mat what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor probably the excessive amounts of traveling um mm. I, I don't enjoy it that much. Uh, I don't, I, I, when I'm there, I love it, but the actual act of going to airports and security and all of that stuff, I, I don't like so much. Um, that's, that, that could be for a lot of professions, of course. It just so happens to be a big thing with our profession. 
Um, but also I would probably say the excessive amounts of back pain that comes with it actually. <laughs> and my chiropractic bill that comes with this as well. I would, I would love to change that, that's for sure. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Um, and this is, this is actually something that I, I might still want to attempt, actually. I would love to be an art restorer, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I've always been super fascinated with um, well, museums in general, but I, I love the act of sort of slowly but surely cleaning up an artwork and figuring out what the artist's intent is and um, learning all the new technologies and different chemical compounds that help with uh, whatever the artwork that you're working on to come back to its original glory or at least close to that as possible. For me, I feel like that would be endlessly fascinating. And then just sort of on a small aside, I, I, I still wonder about speed skating. I, I, might, I might still have a history in that. I might still have a future. <laughs> <laughs> Do it. Go for it. <laughs> and if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Mm. Uh, probably a really, really massive sort of North Indian spread um, with every different dish that you can possibly imagine and a mango lassi for sure. I don't drink alcohol, unfortunately, but um, a mango lassi would do it for me for sure. Brilliant answer. Uh, Ryan, what a pleasure it's been and I hope to see you very soon. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it again. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a Grammy Award-winning conductor who has conducted all over the world, being music director or chief conductor in France, the United States and the United Kingdom. He's also a composer and author, as well as being a disc jockey. Until then, bye-bye.